0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is
1: active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
2: So as we start today's Political Rewind, could we all just take a moment... I know that uh, after the Braves secured their place in the World Series, there was some politicizing of that when Republicans like Governor Kemp uh, decided to use that moment to once again uh, hit Democrats because the All-Star Game was moved out of Atlanta over Senate Bill 202. But could we just, for a moment, celebrate together? It's one of the great things about sports, isn't it? I mean, even in dark political times where this toxic... kind of partisanship has driven us apart. I think everybody in Georgia is excited and thrilled that the Atlanta Braves have won the World Series. And I hope we can all just take a few minutes and celebrate uh, a great, great victory and congratulate uh, the Atlanta Braves for that win. And there's nobody happier about that this moment. I mean, I know there are an awful lot of Braves fans out there. You don't want to single anybody out. But Greg Bluestein, if you have to single somebody out, you'd be the guy. (laughs) I was supposed
3: to be on a plane at this moment going to Houston for Game 7. Thankfully, I got a refund on those tickets and on my Game 7 tickets and all that. But it was quite the moment. And, And I had a surprisingly good time celebrating the victory, not at a sports bar, not at the stadium, at Truist, with thousands of others, but at Felicia Moore's election watching party, where she finished her her victory speech shortly before the bottom of the ninth inning.
2: You got a shout out in one of the most popular uh, morning newsletters. Which one was it, Craig?
3: A political playbook. <laughs> Tia Mitchell, yeah. my colleague in Washington, pointed that out this morning. They were uh, political playbook, which go- uh, of my celebration.
2: <laughs> well, we're very happy for you, Greg Bluestein, as I am for everybody else who's joining us for this show today. And we've got the perfect panel to talk about the results of the election, to talk about redistricting, which starts today at the Capitol. Um, Andre Gillespie, you're a native of the state of Virginia, and so your insights about What happened in Virginia and what it may mean for the rest of the country and for Georgia in in particular will be important. Andra Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnston Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Welcome to Political Rewind today, Andra.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. Donna Lowry. Um, We're Donna. You're about to get into the midst of the redistricting session. You're already down at the state capitol as we present the show today. Um, So thank you for being willing to take some time to join us. How are you feeling? Are you energized about the session that's starting today? That starts today. I'm
0: excited. I'm just exhausted because of that. I had a hard time going to sleep. I was so excited about everything. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm thrilled. The good thing is knowing that everybody here is feeling the same way. Yeah. Excited but <laughs> tired.
2: <laughs> professor Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of um, uh, uh, West Georgia, is uh, with us as well today. How, how are you, Karen?
1: I'm doing well. My eyes are slowly adjusting to waking up and seeing light again after watching the television with the Braves and then my phone for all the election results.
2: Yeah. Um, Karen, tell us, you know, when I introduce you, I realize I, I don't also mention something. It's part of your role out there at university. You're oversee the Thomas B. Murphy. Tell her, what is that role exactly? I'm
1: the director of the Thomas Murphy Center for Public Service, and our center is to engage the students and community in more public service outreach and civic engagement.
2: Okay, I really should mention that um, um, when you do the show, so thank you for reminding me of it. All right, let's get right to it. Greg Bluestein, um, it's no surprise in the city of Atlanta that Felicia Moore has made the runoff. Everybody kind of expected that all along. She usually was topping the, the polls, which um, showed her with a slight lead, but your polling at the AJC uh, typically showed that it looked like Kasim Reed was going to be in the runoff with her. It now appears, and, and for those who are listening to the show at two o'clock, remember we're live at nine in the morning, and there we may see some changes, although it's not expected. It looks Greg Bluestein, like uh, the the uh, r- the uh, runoff is going to be between Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens. Yeah,
3: this yeah, stunning collapse for former Mayor Cassim Reed. Because take away even the polls, right? The polls, including our poll that was conducted by UGA, showed Cassim Reed in in that number two spot. But even taking away the polls, just based on name recognition, based on fundraising mm-hmm. advantages, based on endorsements from civil rights leaders. Uh, to, 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 you know, younger, up-and-coming politicians here in Atlanta. Based on all of that, um, you know, you, you you would have expected Kissinger to be right there in the thick of that runoff battle. Um, but it turned out he could not overcome the cloud of questions around the corruption probe that's still ongoing, that is not – has not implicated him, but has implicated members of his administration over his two terms in office, and he could not get over the negative poll, uh, the negative ratings he had. Our poll and other polls showed that he had these consistently high negative ratings, in part due to his years of cutthroat politics in City Hall, and and he couldn't withstand that. And we we found that out ourselves when we were interviewing voters, not just yesterday, but over the course of the last few months, who you know said they were ready for for a change in City Hall.
2: Andrew?
1: I actually don't think
4: that the polls got it wrong about Kasim Reid. If we look at sort of like where he's polling, he's polling at about what the poll suggested that he was going to do. The big challenge in in the surveys was that uh, it was undecided who were leading the pack the entire time, and they stayed that way close to the end. And so given the high number of undecided, given the number of people who said that they had an unfavorable view of Kasim Reid, and given the number of people who said that the corruption allegations about the Reed administration were a non-starter for them in terms of voting. What that 41 percent was was a group that said, I'm not voting for Kasim Reed, but they weren't quite sure yet who they were voting for. And so what we found out was that Reed didn't really gain a whole lot um, of those votes and that those votes really split more for Felicia Moore, but also in a substantial enough way for Andre Dickens. And Sharon Gay didn't benefit from any of that undecided largesse yesterday.
1: I think I'm just right. I think she's really right hitting the point here on those undecided, those people who waited until the very last moment to pick their candidate. And I think Dickens really scored well on that. People decided they liked his messaging. He went into a lot of the area that Reed had done well previously and was able to pick up those voters. But I looked back, and if you look at the race four years ago with Bottoms and that slate of 12 candidates then, that race was much more evenly divided, with 26% being the top vote getter. Norwood was only like six percentage points behind her. And this is a very different contest where you had Felicia Moore over 40%, which shows she really had a lot of backing throughout the city and ran a very you know, positive, changing kind of messaging. And I think part of that we saw when she said that Atlanta deserves more. I think we're going to hear more of that over the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah. Donna? I I totally agree that uh, he just couldn't overcome the negatives and the least of them, them was the um that he had people from his administration conv- convicted of crimes. I think the NAACP rebuke was huge. I think that that hit a lot of people. I had I remember someone calling me and saying when the NAACP comes out against you, how can you how as a black person, how do you expect to make it? I think um the the quote that i saw from james woodall who was the former georgia naacp president and who's now with the southern center for human rights he said you can't expect to win an election and you trash the very people you need to win i think that was huge i think the people's town flooding issues that was a big deal the accusations that he was forcing people out and using uh, eminent domain and i think the um the issues over the hbcus in atlanta and taking some of the land you know dealing with morris brown and clark atlanta university those issues were big so i think that he once those things started coming out in the last few weeks um i started seeing where people were really upset with him so not not Um, unexpected
2: yeah, the NAACP, the, this was the Atlanta NAACP, which, is, as we've discussed on the show, then was criticized by its own national organization for issuing what was essentially an anti-endorsement, I think is the best way to put that. But, but Andra, um, so did Stacey Abrams' organization uh, issue, a? I thought, surprising rebuke of Kasim Reed in the final week of the race.
4: Um, He made a lot of enemies and he hadn't really sort of, you know, uh, you know, been challenged uh, by uh, that, but this was his comeuppance. And we could see that coming, given the amount of money that he was raising, given his name recognition. Given the infrastructure that we knew he was capable of putting together, the fact that he was only polling about 20 percent in the polls throughout this cycle was a sign that this was a challenged candidacy Mm -hmm. from the beginning. So even if he had made it into the primary, right, it was seriously doubtful, given how well Andre Dickens performed, that Dickens supporters you know, who received the endorsement of Shirley Franklin, who has had a public falling out with the same read, we're going to defect and support him in a runoff. He's he's been in battle from the beginning. And even if he were to make it to the runoff election, this would still be a big, big challenge for him. So, I mean, I think that that, you know, this was a reckoning for him. And so we'll see, um, you know, what his career trajectory looks like after this.
2: Greg, because the Atlanta mayor's race really is significant around the state of Georgia. Um, there are probably many people listening to this show who have no idea who Andre Dickens is. Who is Andre Dickens? And, and, and there's what does it mean that, yeah, there are people in Atlanta, I know that as well, but who is he and, and what might it mean that he is now probably in the runoff?
3: Yeah, he is a, a successful businessman and a councilman um, in the city of Atlanta uh, who's always seen as sort of one of the members of the ascendant, younger, more progressive political class. In in Atlanta, he didn't go as far left in this race as people like Councilman Antonio Brown, who gained very little traction. Um, But he also presented uh, a muscular approach to fighting crime and to preventing the Buckhead split, maybe the two biggest issues on the tops of the minds of a lot of Atlanta voters. But also... He spoke to the issue that was on the top of the mind of a lot of the younger Atlanta voters, which was housing inequality. And he had plans mm-hmm. uh, to, to help more, bring more affordable housing to the city and help bridge that gap uh, between the income, uh, in, income diversity in Atlanta.
2: Andre, we do think that turnout was pretty low. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what the final uh, numbers are and what that might mean for the runoff, whether people are going to suddenly get energized to want to turn out. But let me ask you, if I may, a different question. Uh, In two victories uh, in which Kasim Reed was elected mayor, he won against Mary Norwood, a white candidate, by less than a thousand votes in each case. Should we here in the city of Atlanta, and really for that matter across the state, be heartened by the fact that it appeared that race played almost no role in this race, to the extent that Sharon Gay, the white candidate in the race, really, un- unfortunately for her, unfortunately for her, never gained any traction? Is there some sign of progress in that, Andra? Well, you
4: know, I think that it is important for us to not caricature votes solely on the basis of race. And I understand in particular for African-American voters, because they're the ones that are really kind of determining who's making it to to the runoff here um, are sophisticated and that they make very nuanced decisions. There is still, um, you know, there is still racial polarization in this election. So if you look at the map, we know what residential segregation looks like in the city of Atlanta. Alicia Moore is doing well in the parts of town that Mary Norwood wants. Um, Cassine Reed um, and she was dominant there. I mean, if she was, it wasn't that she you know, just won. It was that she dominated. Like, if, if this race had just been north of North Avenue, Felicia Moore would have won last night. Kasim Reed won pluralities um, in, in the south side of the city. Um, And uh, Moore and and, and Dickens kind of were uh, strong second and third place contenders, which is why he's in third place position at this point. And we see places where Dickens was doing well in Midtown and parts of East Atlanta and in other places. So um, we still see that whites have a strong preference for one candidate. That is likely going to put Felicia Moore in really strong contention going into the runoff election. I think that if you know Reed were the second place finisher, I think we would probably see some type of racially polarized voting, but he would underperform in black areas in part because his negatives are high. I think what's going to be really interesting if Dickens actually turns out to be the second place finisher, which you know um, is, is very likely at this point, who his coalition is. And in terms of thinking about what the coalitions look like, when I think of this for Kasim Reed, he kind of is in the same position that Lisa Borders was in, a little different, but a different type of position, but a similar position that Lisa Borders in 2009 in terms of not having a clear constituency. So, yeah, he's doing better in the black parts of town, but the other black candidates held their own there as well. So it's not like he had a monopoly on that support in the same way that he did in 2009 when he was able to beat Borders.
2: Okay, Donna, I don't want to push a point that, that may, be, may not be pertinent, but what I also heard Andra just say is that Felicia Moore did pretty well with the kind of white voters who, when Mary Norwood was on the ballot, would have voted, ha- had voted for her. So I'm just wondering if we can say that there's any progress in white voters' willingness to turn to black candidates when, in the past, they would have gone with a white candidate in this race if the Norwood candidacy was any indication
0: no i I, I totally agree that I think that that's what's happening that uh, it you don't they they didn't necessarily have to have a white candidate for for them to um for the voters who would go for a white candidate for white voters to go after to go for someone like Felicia Moore. Um, I heard a lot of people talk about the positives with her. And some of that with the white community, the people that I know was a negative to read to go for Felicia Moore early on. I think, and in terms of Andre Dickens, I think it's going to take a while. It's going to be interesting to see where his coalition builds and how much he's able to pull from the Sharon Gay people, some of the others, you know, remember there were fourteen people in this race and some of the others and pull that together. I think if he is the one who's going to be going up against Felicia Moore, he's got to do some work there in terms of people understanding who he who he really is.
2: Thank you for that. Look, I'm not suggesting we've reached some kumbaya moment. We certainly are a long way from doing that unfortunately, but I do find some interest in, in how the vote turned out. Uh, Yesterday. Uh, Greg, let's look at a couple other races uh, in, in Metro, particularly. Um, th- there were people who thought that progressive challengers to incumbents might gain some traction in this election. So, for instance, in Sandy Springs, uh, Dante Carter, an African American Democrat, uh, uh, challenged Rusty Paul, the incumbent, and um, there were people who wondered if he could gain any traction. Well, it doesn't appear he did. Rusty Paul is winning by a huge mark. I mean, you think he had something like 70% of the vote yeah. uh, as of early this morning. So <clears throat> Rusty Paul will serve another term as mayor of Sandy Springs in uh, Tucker, a little town of Tucker in DeKalb County. The incumbent mayor, Frank Alman was challenged by a, a Democrat uh, uh, and uh, named Robin Abrio. Uh, He beat her pretty handily. More important, up in Marietta, Steve Tomlin, uh, who was identified as a Republican, also won against a uh, Democrat. So, I mean, it looks like uh, this notion that there's going to be some progressive insurgency that's going to sweep through cities in the state certainly didn't develop last night.
3: Yeah, I mean, Democrats were really excited about these opportunities to run uh, these down-ticket, technically nonpartisan races, but the three people you just mentioned are all closely aligned with Republican politics. Steve Tomlin's a former state law, Republican state lawmaker. Rusty Paul's a former G- Georgia GOP chair. Frank Allman is a former Republican operative. So uh, Democrats were, were were hoping to pull off what they pulled off in the last two election cycles, which is running down-ticket in these state legislative races that were rarely challenged um, by, by Democrats in this, you know, safely Republican seats. They were hoping to build a bench with these mayoral races now, too. And, and in many of the cases, we're not sure about all because we're still seeing some of the results, but in many of these cases, the Democratic challengers who often kind of wore their party affiliation on their sleeves um, were, were, were defeated by, by the incumbents or by the conservative-leaning challengers.
2: Karen?
1: Yeah. And so in these local elections, I think we see clearly one point, which is the incumbents have an advantage. People know them. Their name ID is usually higher. And in these low turnout local elections, people gravitate back to the person's name that they know usually. You know, Greg mentioned that these have become partisan. But also these are people running, you know, and trying to get their neighbors votes. And so sometimes they are not always looking at the shifting winds of the partisan politics. I would also say that some of these elections we've looked at, you know, the idea that the suburbs of Atlanta are now really moving blue and are Democratic. I think we may want to hold off and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe the Democrats have rented those suburbs in 18 and 20, but they don't own them yet. Right. Like in 2021, we're seeing some movement back that the independents are trying to pick someone and they may not own it for a few more election cycles.
4: Uh, You know, I think that that's an important point, that we should be braced for competitive elections for the next few cycles going forward. And I think, you know, before, uh, you know, the candidates who lost, I I think that as these suburbs become increasingly diverse, it should become normal for there to be candidates of color. um, And it should also be normal that you're going to see folks who are more liberal than the type of candidates who would have been running in these areas uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, depending on when they were incorporated.
2: Okay, um, let's move on to one last issue in terms of local elections, uh, Donna. There were any number of e-splasts on the ballot yesterday. Um, uh, voters were asked uh, in a number of counties uh, if they would either extend or, uh, or begin a, a penny sales tax that would be used for education. And I think it's it's a sign that people in the state – to some extent really do see the value of education because in from what I'm seeing in the returns many of those east blasts in fact uh, succeeded i was interested in the fact that in my own polling place in Decab county that was the only item on the ballot one item Uh, 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 would the uh, uh, county extend uh, the one-penny sales tax to be used for capital improvements at the schools? And I was really kind of surprised at how many people were at my polling place for that one issue when I showed up.
0: Yeah, it it just shows you also that what this pandemic has done. Hmm. It's made people focus more on schools and understand what's going on in classrooms and the needs that are in those classrooms that are so important. And also we, we saw more people involved because of the pandemic issues in terms of what was going on with local school boards in terms of things like the mass mandates and vaccines and all of that. And so I think people are paying more attention to schools and this can only bode well in terms of the school districts feeling like they, they can um, go ahead with some capital improvements and do some things that they need to do. One of the things we know with these plus is you can you can use that money to help with tech issues. And that we know was a big issue during the pandemic, making sure these kids could actually get into the classrooms virtually.
2: Well said by the woman who was, without doubt, the best-known and most highly respected education reporter during her years (laughs) at Channel 11 in Atlanta. Greg, take (laughs) us to the break. Uh, What final thoughts do you have about uh, the local elections uh, that you watched unfold? Yeah, I mean,
3: you know, you see a dismal turnout in many of these, but as as Donna said, um, there were still – local enthusiasm over over issues that were near and dear to people's hearts. And and it was a it was a test case for Georgia's new election law. We saw that there were there were some minor glitches, but for the most part, things went fairly smoothly, which was a benefit. I think people it was good for for voters, no matter how you feel about the election law, to get used to the new regime.
2: Yeah, I want to quickly say that we had a panelist on the show yesterday who said that when uh, he went to vote, it took longer. There were barriers to voting. And I'm not sure I understood that because when I voted yesterday, the process was faster than it's ever been before. Now, granted, it was a low turnout election. But um, at the very beginning of, the, of it, I'd never had to fill out the kind of form that I have in the past. Everything was in the computer, so all I had to do was hand in my driver's license. So at least my experience yesterday was there are a few things about this that worked very smoothly, which is not to say everything about SB202 is guaranteed to make elections operate the way most people would like to see democracy work in this uh, state. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break in the show because we really want to talk about Virginia. A huge win for Republicans yesterday. But how much impact do we really think it has on a state like Georgia? We'll talk about that and more after these messages. Donna Lowry, Karen Owen, Greg Bluestein, and Andra Gillespie on today's Political Rewind. Andra, I'm so glad you're with us the day after the Virginia election. You grew up in Virginia, you know the state politically inside and out, and so I'm really eager to hear your take on this. It seemed, I think, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, in the final days of the race, it felt increasingly like Terry McAuliffe was not headed for. Uh, victory. The poll showed it neck and neck, but uh, McAuliffe actually sent a letter out to his supporters yesterday before the results were in saying, win or lose, we fought the good fight, which is never a good sign for a candidate. And then as the results started coming in, and in areas of the state where Joe Biden had done so well in 2020, uh, McAuliffe was underperforming him significantly. It was not surprising that Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, became the fir- is becoming the first Republican governor in 12 years in Virginia, right?
4: Yeah, so um, I'm going to do a little bit of comparison to New Jersey, and I can do New Jersey privileges because I have a New Jersey birth certificate and wrote my first book about Newark. So I um, <laughs> spent a lot of time there, too. When I looked at both maps, and, you know, New Jersey's race is still too close to call, um, and you start to look at where the outstanding votes were. Um, last night, when people are noticing how close the race is between Phil Murphy um, and Chiarelli, um, and you're looking at, at the numbers and you're like, hmm, there's a lot of outstanding votes in Passaic and Essex um, and Hudson Counties. You're like, hmm, that's Jersey City, that's Newark, that's Patterson and Passaic. All right, like that, those are Democratic areas. And so it's narrower than people expected, but one would expect that Phil Murphy's probably going to win. Last night, when I started to look at the numbers, one of the first places that I, I, I looked was the Fairfax County vote was kind of in. The Prince William vote was largely in. The outstanding votes were in Chesterfield, south of Richmond. And it was like, hmm, there aren't enough votes in Chesterfield counting for Terry McAuliffe to be able to pull off this victory. So between yeah. that and having played math with the exit polls to try to figure out what the exit polls were predicting, it was like, you know, it, I, I knew pretty early that this was likely going to go in, in Youngkin's favor um, you know, Youngkin was able to capitalize on social issues and he was able to tap into the anger um, of uh, the electorate over those issues um, in ways that resonates with me with work that my friend dad in Phoenix has done at the University of California, Irvine, that talks about anger and how anger is actually a mobilizing factor in white voter turnout. That's what it looks like is happening here. And there also seems to be a failure of, of mobilization um, and turnout. Um, so um, African-Americans uh, turned out at rates, it looks like, that are lower than what their proportion of the population would su- suggest that they would be. That's damaging for Democrats. And so it seems like all of this attention that was focused on Northern Virginia because it's populous, right, came at the expense perhaps of looking at African-American voters, not just in Northern Virginia, but also in Richmond and in tide weather. So everybody's comparing it to last year. I've been looking at the 2017 numbers and looking at the places that Ralph Northam won. Ralph Northam won Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach went Yunkin this time. Um, out in the western part of the state, uh, Northam won Montgomery County, which is where Blacksburg, Virginia Tech is, right? Yunkin won that this time around. So, um, you know, it looks like Youngkin won Chesapeake. There are these places that uh, should Democrats should do better in um, that he didn't do better in. And Northam was in a, a unique position. He was a state senator who represented, uh, you know, represented Tidewater, was a doctor in the Norfolk area, was from the eastern shore of Virginia. Um, and, 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 and McAuliffe never had that. But I think probably at the end of the day, I've got to look at this a little bit more, but one of the things that I'm also sort of looking at, in the data preliminarily is the reaction to his comment that parents, you know, shouldn't be allowed to dictate what their kids are taught in school was this unforced error uh, that was the gift that kept on giving for, for Glenn Youngkin. And the reaction to a loss of parental control tied in with the racial resentment that's somewhat underlying it because people were arguing about whether or not you should teach beloved in school and critical race theory is something that we're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about.
2: Yeah, um Karen uh, weigh in on this if you will please what um you one of the things you noticed um, Andre mentioned the African- American vote underperforming but you also looked at the uh, the vote. Of white women as expressed in the exit polls. And those are voters who in 2020 almost certainly were voting for Joe Biden in the state of Virginia, helped him win Virginia, and certainly they were voting uh, for Joe Biden here in Georgia as well. What happened in Virginia with those white female voters?
1: So you're right. So part of my interest in this race was what did happen, and especially those white women in the suburbs, And it looks like through exit polling that they went to Yunkin 57-43, which is a significant um, swing from what their support to Biden had been, which I think is a roughly maybe about 15-point, 16-point swing away from the Democrats. Um, And I think that we could probably speculate, and I'm like, Andre, you really need to look at some of these exit polling and what the, the white women specifically were talking about. But two issues really resonate with these women, and one is the economy, and two is education, because most of them do have children, and they're very concerned about what their children have experienced in the last two years in terms of the COVID pandemic, what has happened with schools being you know, shut down and virtual learning and then going back, as well as that Republicans ran on the issue. When McCullough made the statement, they jumped on that to really excite a base to come out and vote and support them with the idea that Youngkin's talking a lot now about school choice, which again would resonate a lot with some of these female voters. And I think we cannot escape the fact or ignore the fact that Joe Biden's approval rating is extremely low right now. It is lower right now than at, at this stage of his presidency than any other presidents really in the modern era when we've looked at polling. And that has played, I think, a really critical factor. The Democrats could not run on a look how we have governed, look what we were doing for you. They didn't have that messaging in this race.
2: So, um, Greg, uh, some of the lessons for Georgia, uh, and then we can keep talking about this. Um, as, as both Karen and Andra said, uh, the education issue was, was really Youngkin's strong suit in his closing. I think something like 75, 80% of his ads in the final weeks of the race mentioned Terry McAuliffe saying parents shouldn't tell teachers what they can teach. The question becomes, this is something that I would think Georgia Republicans are going to run with uh, moving into 2022 in a very strong way. And Virginia gives them hope that it's a message that might resonate.
3: Yeah, look, we're we're already seeing that. I mean, Bert, Bert Jones, the lieutenant governor candidate, came out uh, right before the election on Monday with an ad focusing on critical race theory. Um, Brian Kemp, we saw months ago, take this issue. And, and if you're Brian Kemp, you're watching... He's in a very different position than Glenn Youngkin because Donald Trump is openly (laughs) going out, criticizing him and promising to support his opponent. But still, if you're Brian Kemp, you're looking at Glenn Youngkin's path to victory and realizing that you could focus on critical race theory, on immigration, on education-related issues that are hot-button culture wars um, and, and have a path to victory. Uh, Stacey Abrams, about what lessons it has for Democrats or potential Democratic candidates like Stacey Abrams, it's, hard to, it's harder to draw that line because Terry McAuliffe had to bring in Stacey Abrams and Keisha Lance Bottoms to help energize the African-American vote. Uh, I, I'm not you by telling you, Stacey Abrams has no problem doing that. <laughs> she already is energizing the African-American vote, so she won't need extra support to try to mobilize black voters. That is, that is her calling card. That is what she's been able to do effectively, so, so effectively in 2018 and, and in building her political organization since then.
2: Donna, I think that Greg just said something really important, and I'd love for you, Andra and Karen, to pick up on it. I mean, there are some some things that, that Republicans here and Democrats will learn out of Virginia. But the fact of the matter is, number one, Terry McAuliffe was a very imperfect candidate who did not run a particularly strong campaign. So that's one strike against him. Number two, he ran his campaign without a lot of ideas of what, what he wanted to do. He ran an anti-Trump campaign. Glenn, Glenn Youngkin was a able to counter that by being very careful about only talking about Trump on the most conservative media outlets and distancing himself from Trump in other circumstances. So, I mean, there are things that are not going to be uh, similar, Donna. Um, But again, going back to your strong suit, education, it's looking more and more like could be one of the most important issues we'll talk about in 2022.
0: Yeah, and as somebody who's been covering education for a long time, it's, it's good to see that uh, people are caring about it. And I go back to saying that the pandem- pandemic changed everything. Remember, the whole issue of critical race theory came out during the, camp pa- the, the pandemic when parents were paying more attention to exactly what was happening in schools, how school boards were handling the pandemic related issues. And now, uh, and then this camp comes out, out of nowhere after 40 something years. A theory, and um, people have it. Really energized them. It gave them something to really think about. And he, Youngkin, understood how important that was going to be uh, in putting him over the line because he really, really dug deep into it, as I understand, near the end of the campaign, and um, it appears to have worked well for him. Andrew. You know, one of the things I would caution in terms of the comparisons
4: between the states is there are more white Democrats in Virginia than there are, you know, yeah. in Georgia. So like there just there wasn't it was never an apple to apple comparison to begin with. While I, I, I expect that certain tropes like critical race theory, defund the police, law and order, tax and spend, liberal, socialist—all of those things, tropes that Republicans have been using for the last couple of years—are going to, you know, still be used in, in, in 2022 as part of the nationalization of our, our of our politics, we also have to remember and cannot forget that the candidates themselves matter, and this has somewhat been alluded to already. One of the things that I forgot to say sorry, a couple minutes ago was that if you look at McCullough's performance and his vote totals, you usually expect that you're going to have some, you're going to lose votes as you start to go downstream and that actually wasn't the case this time around. So if you look at his running mates, running for lieutenant governor, running for attorney general, they actually got more votes than he did, which suggests that there were people who were just frustrated with him as a candidate and they didn't like him and even though they all lost sort of in this wave of, of anti-democratic sentiment, um, Terry McAuliffe was a drag at the top of the ticket. And so um, and th- th- that's something that they're going to have to reflect and own as they try to figure out what happened here.
2: Yeah, Greg, it appears as of this hour, as we do this show live in the morning, that the Virginia House of Delegates, which has been a Democratic controlled body, uh, is going to flip and be controlled by Republicans uh, going forward. That's another bad sign for Democrats. <laughs>
3: A major shift, uh, a major sign for down-ticket races. Again, it's hard to read into these. A lot can happen in the next year. And look, you know, speaking of of, of McAuliffe's, uh, strategy, it was so, it was so muddied, as as everyone has said, and it was so focused on Trump near the end. I mean, I think he said in his election eve rally, he said Trump's name 13 times in a in a very short speech. Um, this is something we also have not seen Stacey Abrams do. In 2018, it was a different time, but in 2018, she would barely mention. Even Trump's name, name, she would talk about the man in the White House. Um, instead, she would spoke, focus on state issues, education, taxes, the economy, healthcare. Um, so, if she runs, which which is still widely expected in the Democratic world here, um, you know it, it's hard to draw that parallel between her and, and McAuliffe because. She is. She will probably bring up Trump, I'm sure, but she will not focus her campaign, especially in the, fall, in the final days, on Trump-related issues, especially when it's such a close, narrow race uh, in, in general and
2: statewide. So, Karen, so let me ask you about this in terms of Trump. We we saw Youngkin distance himself as much as possible from Trump, and it apparently uh, helped him with some of the voters you talked about, white women voters especially. Um that's not a comparison to Georgia, at least in the primary campaign. Republican candidates on the ballot in Georgia are hugging as tightly to Trump, with a few exceptions, as they possibly can. Um, so they're not learning any lesson from the way Youngkin performed in Virginia. But is it going to have an impact on how they then try to recalculate what happens if they win their primaries and move to a general election? I don't see how they pivot and suddenly decide to distance themselves.
1: Well, I think it's interesting, too, that even as we sit here postmortem, Trump has still been very active in Georgia politics versus his activism in Virginia politics. I think that's been different because he still feels very bruised that he lost the state of Georgia. Um, So I think that the primary candidates here in Georgia, yeah, they're going to, a lot of them are, you know, have the endorsement of Trump. They're going to be paying attention to those Trump voters. And I think Greg's point about the Democratic candidates, how much will they actually bring up Trump's name when we get into the general? Or will they stay out of that because they don't want to energize that base of voters to turn out in the general election and vote for the Republican, even if it's not a Trump-backed person like Kemp but just mobilizing them instead of pivoting to their own base and trying to mobilize that base as well. And I would say that, um, you know, one thing out of Virginia that I think the Georgia Republicans, you know, they can pay attention to the House of Delegates potentially flipping. But two, to Andre's point about down ticket and those constitutional offices in Virginia – the lieutenant governor and attorney general let's not lose the fact that the first black woman was elected lieutenant governor in virginia and is a republican and the first latino attorney general was elected who is a republican so republicans in georgia need to say hey we can tap into diversity it can win we can win with this it's been seen in virginia it could probably work here and it's not an apple to apples comparison but i think they need to look at their bench a little bit more clearly
2: Okay, we got to get to a break, but that is such an important point. Except, Andra, that Republicans in Georgia can't do that as long as they are so tied to Donald Trump.
4: Well, they think they're doing it with Herschel Walker if he ends up winning the nomination. So that's where they think they're doing it. Yeah. Do you think it-
2: they're doing that with Herschel Walker?
4: No, and and I mean, and I think in Virginia, I think we also kind of have to be careful sort of about thinking of, I, I think Winston Sears in particular, the Lieutenant Governor-elect is, is somebody who's a very interesting character. She will speak truth to power on obvious forms of racism, but it's a question of the subtle stuff. It's a question of the systemic stuff that I think is still a, a really, really big problem that the party has writ large okay. and even their candidates of color.
2: Got to get to the final break of the show. Last remark. Whatever it means to the state of Georgia, Democrats across the country are terrified about what might happen to the United States House of Representatives and the Senate next year. And they're going to have to start thinking about how they recalibrate if they expect to win uh, some of the key races next year. And we'll be talking a lot about that on Political Rewind in the weeks ahead. Let's get to our final break. When we come back, the redistricting session is underway at the state capitol. We'll talk about that coming up. Donna Lowry, you are down at the Capitol. You're going to be watching redistricting, and every night at 7 are going to be giving us uh, reports from down there, brief reports about how things are going. Um, The the radio is the worst medium possible for trying to really talk about maps and get into a lot of data. Let me just read you Stephen Fowler's uh, lead, which has posted his story on the maps that have so far been thrown around It's posted on the GPB News website. There are practically infinite ways to redraw the boundaries for Georgia state and congressional legislative districts. Only a few will be up for debate in the special session. After the 2020 census documented explosive population growth in metropolitan areas and the 2020 election cemented a purple political shift, the General Assembly will be tasked with crafting new district lines (laughs) Uh, that will last for a decade. He, now, he then goes on to talk about the influx of black, Hispanic, Asian residents in metro and the loss of population in rural Georgia. All of that is fascinating, but Republicans control the redistricting process, and they will certainly draw lines and have the votes to pass uh, maps that will benefit them without regard or maybe with just minimum regard to the growth in minority communities, especially in metro.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if people aren't following Stephen on this, they should be, uh, because Stephen is doing such a good job at looking at these maps and taking and translating them. Um, But yeah, it is it is. We know in the end that it is the Republicans are in control and they will be the ones that we will be looking to to make the difference. Yesterday, Um, The lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, and the Senate uh, Majority Caucus released their draft of the Senate map from the Senate redistricting and reapportionment committee. Um, We haven't had a chance to really look at it, but we'll see a lot of back and forth down here. And the Democrats are are going to do what they can to make changes. But um, in the end, it'll all be on the Republicans. One of the interesting things that um, I've heard from Democrats is that their big thing is right now lawsuits that they're they whatever happens they're going to sue that always happens uh, It happened certainly in two thousand and one, and that changed things from uh the democratic controlled legislature uh, to um, finding out that they had to change things and have a special session for um, after the Republicans filed the lawsuit. So, you know, this is a long process to trying to explain that to everybody is, is uh, difficult, but I think it's interesting given the changing demographics in this state and, um, and the, the slide we've seen from rural areas in t- terms of population into the bigger cities.
2: Greg, we, we've already seen uh, at, at least one map, and it appears Republicans are going to work toward this in the congressional uh, districts uh, that will put Lucy McBath in jeopardy in the 6th and may solidify Carolyn Bordeaux's hold on the 7th. But the 6th, they're looking to make perhaps a Republican district, yeah?
3: Yeah, Republicans have a major challenge. Even though they're they're in control, uh, they're, they're trying to preserve their majorities uh, while also dealing with declining populations in rural leaning areas, in rural areas where Republicans thrive. And so seeing that with congressional districts, uh, you know, ideally they'd want to draw both Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bardot into more competitive districts. But if you do both, if you even try to do both of them beyond the legal challenges, you could end up risking both those seats down the line further into the decade. So it looks like they're just going to go after one, probably Lucy McBath. And then when you look at the state Senate and the state House maps, they're trying to preserve pretty hefty majorities while also folding in these rural districts. And so in the state Senate map, you see two re- Republican-held districts completely collapse. Both of them are held by Republicans running for statewide seats, Tyler Harper and Bruce Thompson. And in the state house, you're seeing Republicans um, draw each other, draw fellow Republicans into primary challenges, which will probably lead to resignations. And, and such people might be ready to get appointments or ready to move out of office anyway. But you're seeing Republicans have to make very tough decisions within their own caucus, and at the same time try to draw Democratic incumbents in competitive Metro Atlanta areas into tougher, tougher fields. You, you saw that in, in North Metro in particular, in Cobb County, and in, and in sort of North Fulton County. You see some Democratic incumbents who will face very tough uh, re-election
2: chances now. Karen.
1: You know, the state legislators, these Republicans, they know that the the demographic shifts have changed. They can't ignore it. Then they're having to play within the legal bounds. I mean, they are constrained by Equal Population and the Voting Rights Act, and they know that. And they've also were on the minority set in 2001 when the Democrats were trying to, for 10 years, hold theirs. You know, advantage. So I think they're coming into this with all that, and you'll see that shift from rural Georgia to metro Atlanta. And I think what's interesting is these maps that are being released, they're really focusing in on Gwinnett County and Forsyth. It's to me like they say, okay, yep, we got to put another Senate district in Gwinnett because that's where the Democrats have control. Population has really been changing. And so we're going to let maybe that one go. And then Forsyth, they're seeing, which is a Republican area. But shoring up, how do you keep that? How do you bring in some of those voters for the House district to maintain it? I think that will be interesting to play out as well as if we talk about, I really want to get this done because women matter, women in politics matter. And during redistricting, female incumbents are not protected. And we will see that in the South Georgia realm, a newly elected woman will be paired her district with um, other members, Lucy McBath, Carolyn McDo Bordeaux. These are women too. That you know, even though they're of the other party, but you know, we'll see this nationwide where these female incumbents get paired, their districts get changed, they lose their core voters, and so they get impacted in this redistricting cycle.
2: Um, Andre, I'm really glad Karen points it out because we don't hear enough about exactly how women fare in the processes. But we should, of course, always remember that this is the first redistricting that we will go through without pre-clearance by DOJ. It will have to be after the fact.
4: Yes. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that there are parts of Section 2 that are still operable here and that might actually, you know, be able to be influenced. So, um, you know, there, what I have heard, the chatter seems to suggest that if if uh, Stanford Bishop's district gets drawn in some really funny ways to try to dilute the power of African-American voters in the district, that that would be the one that's actually more likely to be subjected to change. Um, it's going to be harder to make a claim of packing just because of the diversity of Carolyn Bordeaux's district. But I, I think that mm-hmm. the Republicans think they have some cover by moving some voters of color over into Bordeaux's district and making that a little bit more um, democratic so that they might sort of be absolved of any claims of racism in terms of disadvantaging losing staff.
2: We, we've got about two minutes, but before we do anything else, tell our listeners what you mean when you talk about packing. Give us about a 25-second uh, definition of what that means, because it's important to the process.
4: Right. So you only need 50% plus one of, you know, any group of voters to, like, be able to guarantee victory. And so if you make a district 90% Democratic, that's packing them in a the district. Some of those Democratic voters could go into another district to make it competitive. From a race standpoint, if you make a district you know, 80% African-American or 70% Latino, like, you don't need that many voters of color to guarantee that they're going to pick a candidate of their choice. Um, That, especially if it's the primary reason that you're doing it, is unconstitutional. And so that's where challenges come from.
2: And because you're diluting their strength across a number of districts is what makes it really uh, pernicious.
4: Right. So when those districts become overwhelmingly Democratic, the adjacent districts become more Republican um, and, and whiter as well, just given our racial politics.
2: I just, as we move through this process, I think it's really important that we make sure our listeners are with us as we talk about these things. We are way, way out of time after a wonderful conversation with you, Andre Gillespie, Donna Lowry. Good luck down at the Capitol. We'll be watching you on GPB-TV. Karen Owen, thank you. And Greg Bluestein, one more time, congratulations to your, our Atlanta Braves. Thank you all for being with us. We're back with another show again tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Remember, take care, stay healthy. Yes, wear your mask around other people. Get the booster shot if you're eligible for it. It's easily available. And get your flu shot, too. See you all tomorrow.